Hello everyone and welcome back. My name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and I love you. How's it going, gang? Ooh, what a day! Oodalali! <laughs> it's been a weird one. Um, <coughs> for reasons that will now become apparent. <sighs> okay, never mind. I didn't get hit that hard with it. Um, last night, and then also this morning, uh, not as bad this morning, but certainly last night, um, I had a, just like a, uh, a vascular meltdown, a cardiovascular meltdown. Um, my, my lungs felt all weird and, uh, my, like I was sneezing like crazy that much. I can pretty well attribute to having not had my allergy medicine in a couple of days. Here we go. <laughs> One more. <laughs> so. If you're wondering why I was late today, it's because I was up crazy late last night. Um, like, I was probably up until about 5.15. Uh, so I got up super late. Um, I had work that I probably should have been doing earlier today, but I wasn't able to get to it. And uh, so I'm going to be doing that later tonight, which will be delightful, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I took a... Uh, I'm coughing a bunch, crazy headache, um, a little bit of sore throat, not really that bad, but... Um, headache and then all of the just like my my lungs melting down um, took a COVID rapid test and came back negative so uh, hopefully it's just oh, just a matter of keeping on top of my allergy meds a little bit better I, it's funny one of the first things I was thinking of last night is like would I be would I be exempt from like a draft for something like this because really, it is like it is debilitating. I can't, I can't sleep. Uh, I can't do anything really because I'm just sitting there, like sneezing and coughing. It's a mess. Sparkle Lovegood says, "When I'm listening to you record and hear you sneeze, I sometimes say bless you." <laughs> well, in that case, Sparkle Lovegood, I'm just going to issue a general thank you. Thank you, general. <laughs> Gwendog says, you can't believe how long I've gone without dish soap, and the sore was just now out. I hate that. I hate that when it's like the thing that you need. Speaking of, last night I was trying to do, this was before I started feeling super whack, but uh, Cass needed some photos printed off, and so she got those uh, sent over to the you know local pharmacy, and I don't know if that's a thing everywhere, but in the U.S., like it's pretty common pretty common thing to have connected is a, a pharmacy with some sort of photo printing options. Anyway, um, the photos came in, I went over to grab them, and uh, just like series of unfortunate events style, didn't have them, Cass's battery on her phone was out, so I had to drive all the way back home just to ask her like, hey, what went on here? They don't have any record of it. Went back in, found the darn things. When I got home, I uh, pulled them out of the car and immediately dropped them, and they dropped in like... I have terrible luck. Have we ever talked about this? I have, like, genuinely very bad luck. Um, I dropped these photos, and can you imagine, like, dropping a box of photos in, like, a, a, a little small parking garage or a little, a little garage? Well, somehow it ended up dropping in such a precise fashion. It bounced in such a, at such a, a delightful angle that it sent half of these 100 photos in a line as if you were to sort of like take a deck of cards 
and then throw it like a frisbee it hit it at such a precise angle that it it dropped and then skidded under the car and just like shot shot photos out in this it looked like a, a line of fallen dominoes or something um don't know how this stuff happens but it happens to me don't know how do know when and that's always and then uh yeah i get home and it's like all right time for bed got work in the morning got a stream tomorrow night and uh no actually not actually no so i don't know what that's all about yes i do anyway folks i'm here now hello uh, also, folks, a bit of momentous news. If you would direct your eyes to my current follower count, I don't pay attention to my subscription count. I think, um, I think like prime subscriptions, absolutely go for it. But in general, I would say, if you're gonna throw a subscription into anything, throw it toward Patreon. I don't really, I don't pay so much attention to my Twitch subscribers. Um, to like that, that number isn't super, super important to me, but. You direct your attention toward my follower count. That was kind of important to me. And uh, as of yesterday, Insomniac is officially our 1,000th follower. So, a thousand of us over here riding the sidecar. Uh, everybody, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling over here. You know, on, on my end, you know, just to sort of like see how is this thing growing, there are... There are only so many ways that I can sort of get facts about that, and I'm a very data-focused individual in general. Um, just it, it's it's a I don't know it's just a, a much easier way to clarify my life and how my goals are progressing um, than just sort of general good feelings because I get good feelings about this all the time. But some of these numbers they're handy in knowing that I'm sort of like uh, you know I'm on the right direction so with 1,000 followers I want to tell all of you thank you very much thank you for being here thank you for hanging out and thank you for listening and with that listening in mind <laughs> awkward sushi says I've got no idea what's going on in the book but I'm here don't worry we'll go through a bit of review chapters 22 23 and 24 this week which means last week part one of part three the enemy <laughs> uh, these books divided into three parts each and each part we have divided into three streams chapters 19 20 21 chapter 19 let the 75th hunger games begin we are in the second arena and we find ourselves in um water a little strange uh let me rewind a bit just a generalized i'm trying to get quicker and quicker every time generalized review of this book thus far katniss is back in the hunger games the this new pool uh as part of the quarter quell um this new pool of tributes has been drawn from previous victors which means katniss is going back pete is going back um and uh katniss over the course of this book has been sort of in contact with the capital and the government and especially president snow regarding what you may ask well president snow wants her to keep the rebellions down but katniss sort of sees hey look nothing i can do at this point is going to you know, keep keep this rebellion from kicking off, and maybe the best thing I can do to keep my family safe is actually to energize this rebellion in any way that I can. So, she does. Open Rebellion is kicking off in about half of the districts uh, out of the 12 of them, and uh, of course, then it makes it perfect timing, suspiciously perfect timing, that the quarter quell for the 75th annual Hunger Games is now going to be drawing 
new tributes from the old victors. So, in, indeed, no new tributes, I suppose, might be a more proper way to say it. Um, as of Chapter 19, we arrive in the new arena. Uh, it is water, seems to be sort of like a, a, a wheel kind of formation made out of sharp rocks, uh, but that sits in this sort of saltwater lake. Um, lots of running around, uh, and then some very surprising bits of allyship. Uh, very strange that Katniss suddenly finds herself surrounded not only by Peeta, which she was expecting, but also Finnick O'Dare and uh, his district mate, I guess you would say, Mags, um, the very old woman. These two are allied with Katniss. He's got this gold bangle with flames on it to prove it. Uh, and Katniss sort of realizes, okay, so we told Haymitch we didn't want to do the allies thing. And yet, here we are. So, looks like Hamish has got some sort of plans of his own. As they proceed through, um, they're hit by a couple of different threats, which seem to materialize out of the forests surrounding this saltwater lake. Um, the whole thing, the whole arena, appears to be this sort of big circle, kind of a... a, a maybe a caldera shape. Um, and these various threats sort of appear and disappear, seemingly at random. Um... They have a few little fights. And overall, Katniss sort of thinks, all right, well, um, Fennec is going to be pretty handy here. He saves Peeta multiple times. Once after Peeta um, accidentally steps into the force field that surrounds the arena and gets sort of shocked here uh, outside of the, <laughs> shocked here on the outer edge of the arena, um, nearly to death. In fact, his heart stopped for a little while before Finnick was able to bring him back. Uh, and then Finnick is also, you know, a pretty adept fighter. And so, after uh, fighting off some of the other tributes, after barely surviving without water uh, until they get a, a little device that allowed them to get water, um, after fleeing from some, some caustic sort of acid fog that rolls through, they end up surrounded by monkeys, which, as if on cue, which we, we, well, knowing the game makers, we think it may well be, as if on cue, they attack in unison. At the very end of our last chapter last week, we found ourselves with this monkey lunging at an unprotected pita, before suddenly, a morphling, one of the, one of the individuals addicted to morphling, uh, from District 6, I believe, throws herself in front of this creature, in front of this monkey, and takes the fangs instead of PETA. And that's where we're at. Possibly a crazy sacrifice? Possibly a noble one? There's really just the one way to find out. Chapter 22. Peter drops the sheath and buries his knife into the monkey's back. 
stabbing it again and again until it releases its jaw. He kicks the mud away, bracing for more. I have his arrows now, a loaded bow and finnick at my back, breathing hard but not actively engaged. All right, come on then! Come on! shouts Peter, panting with rage, but something has happened with the monkeys. They're withdrawing, backing up trees, fading into the jungle as if some unheard voice calls them away. A game maker's voice, telling them this is enough. Get her! I say to Peter, we'll cover you. Peter gently lifts the morphling up and carries her the last few yards to the beach while Finnick and I keep our weapons at the ready. But except for the orange carcasses on the ground, the monkeys are gone. Peter lays the morphling on the sand. I cut away the material over her chest, revealing the four deep puncture wounds. Blood slowly trickles from them, making them look far less deadly than they are. The real damage is inside. By the position of the openings, I feel certain the beast has ruptured something vital. A lung, maybe even her heart. She lies on the sand, gasping like a fish out of water. Sagging skin, sickly green, her ribs as prominent as a child's, dead of starvation. Surely she could afford food, but turned to the morphling just as Hamish had turned to drink, I guess. Everything about her speaks of waste. Her body, her life... The vacant look in her eyes. I hold one of her twitching hands, unclear whether it moves from the poison that affected our nerves, the shock of the attack, or withdrawal from the drug that was her sustenance. There's nothing we can do. Nothing but stay with her while she dies. I'll watch the trees, Finnick says before walking away. I'd like to walk away too, but she grips my hand so tightly I would have to pry off her fingers, and I don't have the strength for that kind of cruelty. I think of Rue. How maybe I could sing a song or something, but I don't even know this morphling's name, let alone if she likes songs. I just know she's dying. Peter crouches down on the other side of her and strokes her hair. When he begins to speak in a soft voice, it seems almost nonsensical, but the words aren't for me. With my paint box back at home, I can make every colour imaginable. Pink, as pale as a baby's skin, or as deep as rhubarb. Green like spring grass. Blue that shimmers like ice on water. The morphling stares into Peter's eyes, hanging on to his words. One time I spent three days mixing paint until I found the right shade for sunlight on white fur. You see, I kept thinking that was yellow, but it's much more than that. Layers of all sorts of colour. One by one, says Peter. The morphling's breathing is slowing into shallow catch-breaths. Her free hand dabbles in the blood on her chest, making tiny swirling motions she so loved to paint with. I haven't figured out rainbows yet. They come so quickly and leave so soon. I never have enough time to capture them. Just a bit of blue here, or purple there. Then they fade away again, back into the air, says Peter. The morphling seems mesmerized by Peter's words, entranced. 
She lifts up a trembling hand and paints what I think might be a flower on Peter's cheek. Won't you? He whispers. That looks beautiful. For a moment, the morphling's face lights up in a grin and she makes a small squeaking sound. Then her blood-dappled hand falls back to her chest. She has one last huff of air and the cannon fires. The grip on my hand releases. Peter carries her out into the water. He returns and sits beside me. The morphling floats out toward the cornucopia for a while. Then the hovercraft appears and a four-pronged claw drops, encases her, carries her into the night sky. And she's gone. Finnick rejoins us, his fist full of arrows still wet with monkey blood. He drops them beside me on the sand. I thought you might want these. Thanks, I say. I wade into the water and wash off the gore from my weapons, from my wounds. By the time I turn to the jungle and gather some moss to dry them, all the monkeys' bodies have vanished. Where do they go? I ask. We don't know exactly. The vines shifted, and they were gone, says Finnick. We stare at the jungle, numb and exhausted. In the quiet, I notice the spots where the fog droplets touched my skin have scabbed over. They stopped hurting and begun to itch, intensely. I try to think of this as a good sign, that they're healing. I glance over at Peta, at Finnick, and see that they're both scratching at their damaged faces. Yes, even Finnick's beauty has been marred by this night. Don't scratch, I say, wanting badly to scratch myself, but I know it's the advice my mother would give. You'll only bring infection. You think it's safe to try for the water again? We make our way back to the tree Peter was tapping. Finnick and I stand with our weapons poised while he works the spile in, but no threat appears. Peter's found a good vein, and the water begins to gush from the spile. We slake our thirst, let the warm water pour over our itching bodies. We fill a handful of shells with drinking water and head back to the beach. It's still night, though dawn can't be many hours away, unless the game makers want it to be. Why don't you two get some rest? I say. I'll watch for a while. No. Katniss, I'd rather is Finnick. I look in his eyes, at his face, and realize he's barely holding back tears. Mags, the least I can do is give him the privacy to mourn her. All right, Finnick. Thanks, I say. I lie down in the sand with Peta, who drifts off at once. I stare into the night, thinking of what a difference a day makes. How, yesterday morning, Finnick was on my kill list, and now I'm willing to sleep with him as my guard. He saved Peta and let Mags die, and I don't know why. Only that I can never settle the balance owed between us. All I can do at the moment is go to sleep and let him grieve in peace. And so I do. It's mid-morning when I open my eyes again. Pete is still out beside me. Above us, a mat of grass suspended on branches shields our faces from the sunlight. I sit up and see that Finnick's hands have not been idle. Two woven bowls are filled with fresh water. A third holds a mess of shellfish. Finnick sits on the sand, cracking them open with a stone. 
They're better fresh, he says, ripping a chunk of flesh from a shell and popping it into his mouth. His eyes are still puffy, but I pretend not to notice. My stomach begins to growl at the smell of food, and I reach for one. The sight of my fingernails, caked with blood, stops me. I've been scratching my skin raw in my sleep. You know, if you scratch, you'll bring on infection, says Finnick. That's what I've heard, I say. I go to the salt water and wash off the blood, trying to decide which I hate more, pain or itching. Fed up, I stomp back to the beach, turn my face upward and snap. Hey, Mitch, if you're not too drunk, we could use something for our skin. It's almost funny how quickly the parachute appears above me. I reach up and the tube lands squarely in my open hand. About time, I say, but I can't keep the scowl on my face. Hey, Mitch, what I wouldn't give for five minutes of conversation with him. I plunk down in the sand next to Finnick and screw the lid off of the tube. Inside is a thick, dark ointment with a pungent smell, a combination of tar and pine needles. I wrinkle my nose as I squeeze a glob of the medicine into my palm and begin to massage it into my leg. A sound of pleasure slips out of my mouth as the stuff eradicates my itching. It also stains my scabby skin a ghastly gray-green. As I start on the second leg, I toss the tube to Finnick, who eyes me doubtfully. It's like you're decomposing, says Finnick. But I guess the itching wins out. Because after a minute, Finnick begins to treat his own skin, too. Really, the combination of the scabs and the ointment looks hideous. I can't help enjoying his distress. Oh, poor Finnick. It's the first time in your life you have not looked pretty, I say. It must be. Sensation's completely new. How have you managed it all these years? Just avoid mirrors. You'll forget about it. Not if I keep looking at you. We slather ourselves down, even taking turns rubbing the ointment onto each other's backs where the undershirts didn't protect our skin. I'm going to wake Peter, I say. Hmm. <laughs> No, wait, says Fennec. Let's do it together. Put our faces right in front of his. Well, there's so little opportunity for fun left in my life. I agree. We position ourselves on either side of Peter, lean over until our faces are inches from his nose and give him a shake. Peter? Peter, wake up, I say in a soft sing-song voice. His eyelids flitter open. And he jumps like we've stabbed him. Ah! Finnick and I fall back in the sand, laughing our heads off. Every time we try to stop, we look at Peter's attempt to maintain a disdainful expression, and it sets us off again. By the time we pull ourselves together, I'm thinking, maybe Finnick O'Dare is all right. At least not as vain or self-important as I'd thought. Not so bad at all, really. And just as I've come to this conclusion, a parachute lands next to us with a fresh loaf of bread. Remembering from last year, how Hamish's gifts are often timed to send a message, I make a note to myself. Be friends with Finnick. You'll get food. Finnick turns the bread over in his hands, examining the crusts. A bit too possessively. It's not necessary. It's got that green tint from seaweed that the bread from District 4 always has. We all know it's his. Maybe he's just realized how precious it is and that he never may see another loaf again. 
Maybe some memory of Mags is associated with the crust, but all he says is, This will go well with the shellfish. While I help Peter coat his skin with the ointment, Finnick deftly cleans the meat from the shellfish. We gather round and eat the delicious sweet flesh with the salty bread from District 4. We all look monstrous. The ointment seems to be causing some of the scabs to peel, but I'm glad for the medicine. Not just because it gives relief from the itching, but also because it acts as protection from the blazing white sun in the pink sky. By its position, I estimate it must be going on ten o'clock. We've been in the arena for about a day. Eleven of us are dead. Thirteen alive. Somewhere in the jungle, ten are concealed. Three or four are careers. I don't really feel like trying to remember who the others are. For me... The jungle has quickly evolved from a place of protection to a sinister trap. I know at some point we'll be forced to re-enter its depths, either to hunt or be hunted, but for right now I'm planning to stick to our little beach. I don't hear Peter or Finnick suggesting we do otherwise. For a while, the jungle seems almost static. Humming, shimmering, but not flaunting its dangers. And then in the distance comes screaming. Across from us, a wedge of the jungle begins to vibrate. An enormous wave crests high on the hill, toppling trees and roaring down the slope. It hits the existing seawater with such a force that even though we're so far as we can get from it, the surf bubbles up around our knees, setting our few possessions afloat. Among the three of us, we manage to collect everything before it's carried off, except for our chemical-ridden jumpsuits, which are so eaten away no one cares if we lose them. A cannon fires. We see the hovercraft arrive over the area where the wave began and pluck a body from the trees. Twelve, I think. The circle of the water slowly calms down. Having absorbed the giant wave, we rearrange our things on the wet sand and are about to settle down when I see them. Three figures, about two spokes away, stumbling down the beach. There, I say quietly, nodding in the newcomer's direction. Peter and Finnick follow my gaze. As if by previous agreement, we all fade back into the shadows of the jungle. The trio is in bad shape. You can see that right off. One is being practically dragged out by a second, and the third wanders in loopy circles, as if deranged. There are solid brick-red colors, if they've been dipped in paint and left to dry. Who's that? asks Peter. Or Walt? Mutations. I draw back an arrow, ready for an attack. But all that happens is the one who's being dragged collapses onto the beach. The dragger stamps the ground in frustration and, in an apparent fit of temper, turns and shoves the circling, deranged one over. Fennec's face lights up. Joanna, he calls, and runs for the red things. Fennec, I hear Joanna's voice reply. I exchange a look with Peter. What now? I ask. Can't really leave Finnick, he says. Guess not. Come on, then, I say grouchily, because even if I'd had a list of allies, Joanna Mason would definitely not have been on it. The two of us tromp down the beach to where Finnick and Joanna have just been meeting up. As we move in closer, I see her companions, and confusion sets in. That's Beatty on the ground on his back, and Wireless, who's regained her feet and continues making loops. She's got Wireless and Beatty. Not some volts, says Peter, equally puzzled. I've got to hear how this happened. 
When we reach them, Joanna's gesturing toward the jungle and talking very fast to Finnick. We thought it was rain, you know, because of the lightning, and we were all so thirsty. But then it started coming down, and it turned out to be blood. Thick, hot blood. You couldn't see, you couldn't speak without getting a mouthful. We just staggered around trying to get out of it. That's when blight hit the force field. I'm sorry, Joanna, says Finnick. It takes a moment to place Blight. I, I think he was Joanna's male counterpart from District 7, but I hardly remember seeing him. Come to think of it, I don't think he even showed up for training. Yeah, well, he wasn't much, but he was from home, she says. And he left me alone with these two. She nudges Beatty, who's barely conscious, with her shoe. He got a knife in the back at the cornucopia, and her... We all look over at Wyrus, who's circling around, coated in dried blood and murmuring, Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. Yeah, I know, tick-tock. Nuts is in shock, says Joanna. This seems to draw Wyrus in her direction. She careens into Joanna, who harshly shoves her to the beach. Just stay down, will you? Lay off of her, I snap. Joanna narrows her brown eyes at me in hatred. Lay off of her, she hisses. She steps forward before I can react and slaps me so hard I see stars. How do you think got him out of that bleeding jungle for you? You... Finnick tosses her writhing body over his shoulder and carries her into the water and repeatedly dunks her while she screams a lot of really insulting things at me. But I don't shoot. Because she's with Finnick and because of what she said about getting them for me. What does she mean? She got them for me? I ask Peter. I don't know. You, you did want them originally, he reminds me. Yeah, I did. Originally. But that answers nothing. I look down at Beatty's inert body. But I won't have him long unless we do something. Peter lifts Beatty up in his arms and I take Wyrus by the hand and we go back to our little beach camp. I sit Wyrus in the shallows, and she can get washed up a bit, but she just clutches her hands together and occasionally mumbles, Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. I unhook Beatty's belt and find a heavy metal cylinder attached to the side with a rope of vines. I can't tell what it is, but if he thought it was worth saving, I'm not going to be the one who loses it. I toss it up onto the sand. Beatty's clothes are glued to him with blood, so Peter holds him into the water while I loosen them. It takes some time to get the jumpsuit off, and we find his undergarments are saturated with blood as well. There's no choice but to strip him naked to get him clean. But I have to say, this doesn't make much of an impression on me anymore. Our kitchen table's been full of so many naked men this year. You kind of get used to it after a while. We put down Finnick's mat and lay Beatty on his stomach so we can examine his back. There's a gash about six inches long running from the shoulder blade to below his ribs. Fortunately, it's not too deep. He's lost a lot of blood, though. You can tell by the pallor of his skin, and it's still oozing out of the wound. I sit back on my heels, trying to think. What do I have to work with? Seawater? I feel like my mother when her first line of defense for treating everything was snow. I look over at the jungle. I bet there's a whole pharmacy in there if I know how to use it. But these aren't my plants. And I think about the moss Mags gave me to blow my nose. I'll be right back, I tell Peter. 
Fortunately, this stuff seems to be pretty common in the jungle. I rip an armful from a nearby tree and carry it back to the beach. I make a thick pad out of moss, place it on Beatty's cut, and secure it by tying vines around his body. We get some water into him and then pull him into the shade at the edge of the jungle. I think that's about all we can do, I say. It's good. You're good with this healing stuff, he says. It's in your blood. No, I say, shaking my head. I got my father's blood. The kind that quickens during a hunt, not an epidemic. I'm going to see about Wyrus. I take a handful of the moss to use as a rag and join Wyrus in the shallows. She doesn't resist as I work off her clothing, scrub the blood from her skin. But her eyes are dilating with fear, and when I speak, she doesn't respond except to say with ever-increasing urgency, Tick-tock, 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 tick-tick, tick-tock, tick-tock. She does seem to be trying to tell me something, but with no beady to explain her thoughts, I'm at a loss. Yes, tick-tock, tick-tock, I say. This seems to calm her down a little. I wash out her jumpsuit until there's hardly a trace of blood and help her back into it. It's not damaged like ours were. Her belt's fine, so I fasten that on too. Then I pin her undergarments along with Beatty's under some rock and let them soak. By the time I've rinsed out Beatty's jumpsuit, a shiny, clean Joanna and peeling Finnick have joined us. For a while, Joanna gulps water and stuffs herself with shellfish while I try to coax something out of Wyrus. Finnick tells about the fog and the monkeys in a detached, almost clinical voice, avoiding the most important detail of the story. Everybody offers to guard while the others rest, but in the end, it's Joanna and I who stay up. Me, because I'm really rested, and she, because she simply refuses to lie down. The two of us sit in silence on the beach until the others have gone to sleep. Joanna glances over at Finnick, to be sure, then turns to me. How did you lose Mags? In the fog. Finnick had Peter. I had Mags for a while. And then I couldn't lift her. I couldn't. Finnick said that he couldn't take them both. She kissed him and walked right into the poison, I say. She was Finnick's mentor, you know, Joanna says accusingly. No, I didn't. She was half his family, she says a few moments later. But there's less venom behind it. We watch the water lap up over the undergarments. So what were you doing with nuts and volts? I ask. I told you I got them for you. Hamish said if we were going to be allies, I had to bring them to you, says Joanna. That's what you told him, right? No, I think. But I nod my head in assent. Thanks. I appreciate it. I hope so. She gives me a look filled with loathing, like I'm the biggest drag possible in her life. I wonder if this is what it's like to have an older sister who really hates you. Tick-tock, 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 I hear behind me. I turn and see Wyrus has crawled over. Her eyes are focused on the jungle. Oh, goody, she's back. I'm going to sleep. You and Nuts can guard together, Joanna says. She goes over and flings herself down beside Finnick. Tick-tock, tick-tock, 
Whisper's virus. I guide her in front of me and get her to lie down, stroking her arm to soothe her. She drifts off, stirring restlessly, occasionally sighing out in her sleep. Tick-tock, I agree softly. Toy for bed. Tick-tock. Go to sleep. The sun rises in the sky until it's directly over us. It must be noon, I think absently. Not that it matters. Across the water, off to the right, I see the enormous flash as the lightning bolt hits the tree and the electrical storm begins again. Right in the same area it did last night. Someone must have moved into its range, triggering the attack. I sit for a while, watching the lightning, keeping Wyrus calm, lulled into a sort of peacefulness by the lapping of the water. I think of last night, how the lightning began just after the bell tolled. Twelve bongs. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Wyrus says, surfacing to consciousness for a moment and then going back under. Twelve bongs last night. Like it was midnight. And then lightning. The sun overhead now, like it's noon, and lightning. Suddenly I rise up and survey the arena. The lightning there. In the next pie wedge over came the blood rain where Joanna, Wyrus, and Beatty were caught. We could have been in the third section. We would have been in the third section, right next to that, when the fog appeared. And as soon as it was sucked away, the monkeys began to gather in the fourth. Tick. Talk. My head snapped to the other side. A couple of hours ago, at around ten, that wave came out of the second section to the left of where the lightning strikes now, at noon, at midnight, at noon. Tick-tock, tick-tock, Wyra said in her sleep, as the lightning ceases and the blood rain begins just off to the right of it. Her words suddenly make sense. <sighs> I say under my breath. Tick-tock. My eyes sweep around the full circle of the arena, and I know she's right. Tick-tock! This is a clock! A big discovery in the arena now, after chapter 22. Folks, how are we feeling so far? Van Saves Live says, oh man, I totally forgot all about this reveal. Yup, Van, there's like, there, <laughs> I think there are like two big shocking moments in this one. This actually, I, I don't consider like one of the big two. The first one is, um... Uh, the I, I did do a little bit of doubtfire there, Tanisha, and I can only apologize. Um, uh, the first one is, hey, you're going back to the arena. Um, that's like the first like major one. This one I don't necessarily consider like what like the big two, but hey, this is definitely like a big one. And I'm telling you, I, I keep forgetting sort of like how these things are revealed to people. They they keep coming up very suddenly, right? Um, and the more I read this, the better I think it was handled. The more I read into these, um, you know, I, we keep seeing like, uh, <laughs> okay, Tanisha, I appreciate it. Uh, oh, deities. Um, yeah, the more I, I read this, the more I think like, wow, 
they could really, uh, this author could have definitely blown the lead on some of these things. Uh, Suzanne Collins could have really, like, broadcast or telegraphed this too much. And instead, you know, a lot of these surprises stay very surprising as we go through it. Of course, this is not my first time reading this, and so it's not as surprising. But still, you know, I look at I look at some of the um, some of the moments where she, as the author, of course, knows how things are going to be going later on. But the characters clearly, and this is you know, this is I would say a mark of good literature, but it's not necessarily like a masterstroke. And yet, it's very important, and a lot of uh, a lot of literature sort of forgets it or handles it poorly. It's just good here. Um, these characters. They don't behave like they know what's coming. It's something that uh, gets to me for, from certain, um, shall we say, certain schlocky TV networks, especially. Those are the ones that get to me the worst, but hey. Not important. Not important right now. What is important is that we have a little bit of a chatter break here. Uh, I do a spot of review, and then we roll on through to chapter 23. Y'all, this is the second to last um, <laughs> uh, episode of this book. These are like cruising by. There was even there was even uh, I I did two different breakdowns of this book for for chapter length, and um, one of them was going to be uh much quicker. Um, I was gonna do chapter I was gonna do part one I think in three episodes as usual, but parts two and three I was gonna do each of those in uh. Uh, two episodes instead of splitting it to three. So essentially, I went with the longer of the two options here, and I'm glad that I did overall. But still, even in spite of that, it just feels like we're moving really quickly, right? Van says, we're flying through these books. Sheesh. <laughs> Sheesh. So, everyone, I hope you're excited. I hope you're excited about what's going on here. I think as per usual, most of my sort of like big points of curiosity, y'all know me. When I look at literary analysis, my favorite thing to talk about is the characters and how they develop, um, the, the big questions, and the things that drive them. Um, we're not going to talk about the drives right now, because I don't think we know some of these characters quite well enough, but I definitely would like to hear from you all. Katniss, I mean, it, this is a question that we've dealt with a lot, and I think it's a, it's a fine one to keep revisiting because it's one of the core ones of this book. How does Katniss respond to having allies? There's our chatterbreak question. How is Katniss going to respond? And we're going to sort of specify this question for this particular chatterbreak. How is Katniss going to respond to being allied with Joanna Mason? Joanna Mason, who she doesn't particularly like. Uh, Finnick, she didn't like either, but he's got this sort of token. And now Katniss has to trust Joanna, but only by way of Finnick, right? She and Finnick are apparently close. Joanna and Finnick are apparently close, so now Katniss has to trust just based on that. This is one of the other core aspects that I think we don't get often enough in rebellion literature. Rebellion literature, I think oftentimes, we talk about this a ton with Harry Potter. There's often, su it's often a little too clear cut. The good guys and then the bad guys. Um, I, I find a lot of literature just sort of makes that too simple. And of course, there are those moments where, oh, this good guy turned out to be bad. Oh, this bad guy turned out to be good after all. But in um, in the big argument during um, Harry Potter book five, Order of the Phoenix, um, the big argument between the Order of the Phoenix themselves about basically next steps. Um, for anyone who doesn't want to get into spoilers, I'm not going to do it. Trans rights are human rights. Um, and then now here, this is such an important part of 
any act of rebellion and uh, any act of uh, really sort of trying to organize which organization is sort of the the prime the prime foundation for rebellion overall the issue of trust the issue of trusting allies because not everyone is going to be on the same page you might all be working toward a common goal in some way but it's nearly impossible to trust with 100% certainty and I think this is something that uh, even uh, in our real life, that even well-meaning people have really lost track of. How important it is to unify with people who you might not agree with on every single front. It's a very good way to stay divided. Is to, is to only limit yourself to allies who you agree with in perfection. It's dangerous. At least for us. For the people who want to keep us divided, it's pretty straightforward and quite easy. Keep an eye on it. How is Katniss going to respond to Joanna Mason being added to this little this little band of thieves, this little group of allies? Van says she clearly has no idea how to have allies. She also seems to be in the dark about something. People keep saying things she doesn't understand. For some reason, she just keeps rolling with it rather than asking questions. Interesting. We shall see if these questions boot up. Let's talk about chapter three, and for that we have to talk about chapter twenty-two. Um, chapter twenty-two, of course, Katniss back in the arena. Um, she's got some allies. She's here with uh, not only Peta but also Finnick O'Dare from District Four, Career District, um, and uh, kind of a smarmy lad. But we find out that he makes a pretty good ally overall. Has saved Peta once or twice. Um, they are reeling in the wake of last week's episode where they were. Uh, overcome by poisonous gas, essentially, uh, and they were attacked by these absolutely feral mutt monkeys. After recovering from this, after Peta helps the morphling who saved him sort of drift off peacefully uh, to her death, they see figures on the beach approaching. They, they appear to be sort of coated completely in this brick red color, and as they approach, we realize it's Joanna Mason accompanying or perhaps sort of chaperoning Wyrus and Beatty. These two kind of uh, mega nerds that uh, both Katniss and myself would be very interested in having as allies. As they wander down the beach, we realized that A, Finnick is super excited to see Joanna and they appear to be pretty well together. They, there's no thought of attacking one another, it would seem. They, they are immediately allies and so Katniss kind of has to be allies by proximity. Or by proxy, that's the one I meant to say. Um, quick, edit that out, Sam, edit that out, so you look so you look smart, so you look like you're always on top of your game. You're not, Sam. We know, everyone knows, it's fine. Not only this, but the red coloring appears to be dried blood. That storm off in the distance, it wasn't rain, it was blood. Uh, and as it came down, they were covered in it. Um, apparently this is just one of the many horrors of the arena. We meet up, and Wyrus is just repeating tick-tock, tick-tock. Meanwhile, BD is very injured, has a hard time speaking to anyone, um, carrying this massive spool of something. Uh, and back here on the beach, Katniss sort of uh, has a chance to talk to Joanna. Joanna seems to indicate that Hamish said, Hey, Joanna, if, if uh, you're going to be allies with Katniss, she says you need to get Wyrus and BD to her. Now, of course, Katniss never said anything of the sort, but she's also not sure what's going on with uh, <laughs> with um, 
uh, with Hamish and the allies that they're sort of getting put together for here. Um, finally, the very last bit of review. Uh, she's listening to Wyrus. Katniss listens to Wyrus as Wyrus sort of drifts off to sleep. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. And watches how attentive Wyrus is to certain moments in the arena. She gets very attentive, and then there's the, you know, the bell noises, and then the, the storm starts up again, and Katniss finally puts it together. There are 12 segments to this wheel in the center of the arena. All around that, there are these big wedges, and these wedges seem to be individually affected by different horrors. The monkeys, the big old wave, the lightning storm, etc. Tick-tock. The timing at noon, at midnight, the lightning storm starts, Katniss realizes... This is a clock. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick Chapter 23. A clock. I can almost see the hands ticking around the twelve-sectioned face of the arena. Each hour begins a new horror, a new game-maker weapon, and ends the previous. Lightning, blood rain, fog, monkeys. These are the first four hours of the clock. And at ten, the wave. I don't know what happens in the other seven, but I know Wyrus is right. At present, the blood rain's falling and we're on the beach below the monkey segment, far too close to the fog for my liking. Do the various attacks stay within the confines of the jungle? Not necessarily. That wave didn't. If the fog leeches out of the jungle, would the monkeys return? Get up, I order, shaking Peter and Finnick and Joanna awake. Get up, we've got to move! There's enough time, though, to explain the clock theory to them about Wyrus's tick-tocking and how the movements of the invisible hands trigger a deadly force in each section. I think I've convinced everyone who's conscious except Joanna, who's naturally opposed to liking anything I suggest. But even she agrees it's better to be safe than sorry. While the others collect our few possessions and get Beatty back into his jumpsuit, I rouse Wyrus. She awakens with a panicked, Tick-tock! Tick-tock! Yes, tick-tock, the arena's is a clock. It's a clock, Wyrus, you were right, I say. You were right. Relief floods her face. I guess because somebody has finally understood what she's known from the very first tolling of the bells. Midnight. It starts at midnight. I confirm. A memory struggles to surface in my brain. I see a clock. No, it's a watch resting in Plutarch Heavensby's palm. It starts at midnight, Plutarch said. And then my Mockingjay lit up briefly and vanished. In retrospect, it's like he was trying to give me a clue about the arena. But why would he? At the time, I was no more attributing these games than he was. Maybe he thought it would help me as a mentor. Or maybe this had been the plan all along. Wyrus nods at the blood rain. One thirty, she says. 
exactly, one thirty. And at two, a terrible poisonous fog begins there, I say, pointing at the nearby jungle. So we've got to move somewhere safe for now. She smiles and stands up obediently. Are you thirsty? I hand her the woven bowl and she gulps down about a quart. Finnick gives her the last bit of bread and she gnaws on it. With the inability to communicate overcome, she's functioning again. I check my weapons, tie the spile and the tube of medicine into the parachute and fix it to my belt with vine. Beatty is still pretty out of it, but when Peter tries to lift him, he objects. Why? He says. She's right there, Peter tells him. Virus is fine, she's coming too. But Beatty struggles. Why? He insists. Oh, I know what he wants, says Joanna impatiently. She crosses the beach and picks up the cylinder we took from his belt when we were bathing him. It's coated in a thick layer of congealed blood. This worthless thing? Some kind of wire or something, that's how he got cut. Running up to the cornucopia to get this. I don't know what kind of weapon it's supposed to be, I guess you could pull off a piece and use it as a garrote or something, but really, can you imagine Beatty garroting someone? He won his games with a wire. Setting up that electrical trap, says Peter. It's the best weapon he could have. There's something odd about Joanna not putting this together. Something that doesn't quite ring true. Suspicious. It seems like you would have figured that out, I say, since you nicknamed him Volts and all. Joanna's eyes narrow at me dangerously. Yeah, that was really stupid of me, wasn't it? She says. Guess I must have been distracted by keeping your little friends alive. Well, you were, what, again, getting Mags killed off? My fingers tighten on the knife handle at my belt. Go ahead, try it. I don't care if you are knocked up, I'll rip your throat out, says Joanna. I know I can't kill her right now, but it's just a matter of time with Joanna and me, before one of us offs the other. Maybe we'd all better be careful where we step, says Finnick, shooting me a look. He takes the coil and sets it on Beatty's chest. There's your wire vault. Watch where you plug it. Peter picks up the now unresisting Beatty. Where to? I'd like to go to the cornucopia and watch, just to make sure that we're right about the clock, says Finnick. It seems as good a plan as any. Besides, I wouldn't mind the chance of going over the weapons again. And there are six of us now. Even if you count Beatty and Wyrus out, you've got four good fighters. It's so different from where I was last year at this point, doing everything on my own. Yes, it's great to have allies as long as you can ignore the thought that you'll have to kill them. Beatty and Wyrus will probably find some way to die on their own. If we have to run from something, how far would they get? Joanna, frankly, I could easily kill if it came down to protecting Peta. Or maybe even just to shut her up. What I really need is for someone to take Finnick out for me. Since I don't think I can do it personally. Not after all he's done for Peta. I think about maneuvering him into some kind of encounter with the careers. It's cold, I know, but what are my options? Now that we know about the clock, he probably won't die in the jungle, so someone's going to have to kill him in battle. Because this is so repellent to think about, my mind frantically tries to change topics. But the only thing that distracts me from my current situation is fantasizing about killing President Snow. 
Not very pretty daydreams for a 17-year-old girl, I guess, but very satisfying. We walk down the nearest sand strip, approaching the cornucopia with care, just in case the careers are concealed there. I doubt they are, because we've been on the beach for hours, and there's been no sign of life. The area is abandoned, as I expected. Only the big golden horn and the picked-over pile of weapons remains. When Peter lays Beatty in the shade, and the cornucopia provides, he calls out to Iris. She crouches beside him, and he puts the coil of wire into her hands. Clean it, will you? he asks. Iris nods and scampers over to the water's edge, where she dunks the coil into the water. She starts quietly singing some funny little song about a mouse running up a clock. It must be for children, but it seems to make her happy. Oh, not the song again, says Joanna, rolling her eyes. That went on for hours before she started tick-tocking. Suddenly, Wyrus stands up very straight and points to the jungle. Two, she says. I follow her finger to where the wall of fog has just begun to seep out onto the beach. Yes. Look, Wyrus is right. It's two o'clock and the fog has started. Like clockwork? says Peter. You were very smart to figure that out, Wyrus. Wyrus smiles and goes back to singing and dunking her coil. Oh, she's more than smart, says Beatty. She's intuitive. We all turn to look at Beatty, who seems to be coming back to life. She can sense things before anyone else. Like a canary in one of your coal mines. What's that? Finnick asks me. It's a board that we take down to the mines to warn us if there's bad air, I say. What does it do, die? asks Joanna. It stops singing first. That's when you should get out. But if the air's too bad, it dies. Yes. And so do you. I don't want to talk about dying songbirds. I bring up thoughts of my father's death, and Rue's death, and Maisie Lee Donner's death, and my mother inheriting her songbird. Great. Now I'm thinking about Gale, deep down in that horrible mine with President Snow's threat hanging over his head. So easy to make it look like an accident down there. A silent canary. A spark, and nothing more. I go back to imagining killing the President. Despite her annoyance at Wyrus, Joanna is as happy as I've seen her in the arena. While I'm adding to my stock of arrows, she pokes around until she comes up with a pair of lethal-looking axes. It seems like an odd choice until I see her throw one with such force it sticks into the sun-softened gold of the cornucopia. Of course, Joanna Mason, District 7, Lumber. I bet she's been tossing around axes since she could toddle. It's like Finnick with his trident, or Beatty with his wire. Rue, with her knowledge of plants, I realize it's just another disadvantage District 12 tributes have faced over the years. We don't go down in the mines until we're 18. Looks like most of the other tributes learned something about their trades early on. There were things that you do in a mine that could come in handy in the games, wielding a pick, blowing things up, give you an edge, the way that my hunting did. But we learned them too late. While I've been messing with the weapons, Peter's been squatting on the ground, drawing something with the tip of his knife on a large, smooth leaf he'd brought from the jungle. I look over his shoulder and see he's creating a map of the arena. In the center is the cornucopia on its circle of sand, with the twelve strips branching out of it. 
It looks like a pie sliced into 12 equal wedges. There's another circle representing the waterline, and a slightly larger one indicating the edge of the jungle. Right, now look at how the cornucopia is positioned. I examine the cornucopia to see what he means. Right, the tail's... The tail points toward twelve o'clock, I say. Right, so this is the top of our clock, he says, and quickly scratches the numbers one through twelve around the clock face. Twelve to one is the lightning zone. He writes lightning in tiny print in the corresponding wedge, then works clockwise, adding blood, fog, and monkeys in the following sections. And ten to eleven is the wave, I say. He adds it. Finnick and Joanna join us at this point, armed to the teeth with tridents, axes, and knives. Did you notice anything unusual about the others? I ask Joanna and Beatty, since they might have seen something we didn't. But all they've seen is a lot of blood. I guess they could hold anything. I'm going to mark the ones where we know that the gamemaker's weapons follow us out past the jungle so we can stay clear of those, says Peter, drawing diagonal lines in the fog and wave beaches. Then he sits back. Well, it's a lot more than we knew this morning, anyway. We all nod in agreement, and that's when I notice it. The silence. Our canary has stopped singing. I don't wait. I load an arrow, and I twist and get a glimpse of a dripping, wet, gloss, letting wireless slide to the ground. Her throat slid open in a bright red smile. The point of my arrow disappears into his right temple, and in the instant it takes to reload, Joanna is buried an axe blade in Kashmir's chest. Finnick knocks away a spear, Brutus throws at Peta, and takes Anabaria's knife in his thigh. If there wasn't a cornucopia to duck behind, they'd be dead. Both of the tributes from District 2. I sprint forward in pursuit. The cannon fire confirms there's no way to help Wyrus. No need to finish off Gloss and Kashmir. My allies and I are rounding the horn, starting to give chase to Brutus and Enobaria, who have sprinted down the sand strip toward the jungle. Suddenly the ground jerks beneath my feet, and I'm flung to the side in the sand. The circle of land that holds the cornucopia starts spinning. Fast. Really fast. And I can see the jungle going by in a blur. I feel the centrifugal force pulling me toward the water, and I dig my hands and feet into the sand, trying to get some purchase on the unstable ground. Between the sand flying and the dizziness, I have to squeeze my eyes shut. There's literally nothing I can do but hold on, until, with no deceleration, we slam to a stop. Coughing and queasy, I sit up slowly to find my companions in the same condition. Finnick, Joanna, and Peta have hung on. The three dead bodies have been tossed into the seawater. The whole thing, from missing Wyrus's song to now, can't have taken more than a minute or two. We sit there panting, scraping the sand out of our mouths. "'Where's Volts?' says Joanna. We're on our feet. One wobbly circle of the cornucopia convinces us he's gone. Finnick spots him about twenty yards out into the water, barely keeping afloat, and swims out to haul him in. That's when I remember the wire and how important it was to him. I look frantically around. Where was it? Where was it? And then I see it. It's still clutched in Wyrus's hands, far out in the water. My stomach contracts at the thought of what I must do next. Cover me, I say to the others. I toss aside my weapons and race down the strip closest to her body. Without slowing down, I dive into the water and start for her. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I can see the hovercraft appearing over us, the claw starting to descend to take her away. But I don't stop. I just keep swimming as hard as I can and end up slamming into her body. I come up gasping, trying to avoid swallowing the blood-stained water that spreads out from the opened wound on her neck. She's floating on her back, borne up by her belt and death, staring into that relentless sun. As I tread water, I have to wrench the coil out of her hands because her final grip on it is so tight. There's nothing I can do then but close her eyelids, whisper goodbye, and swim away. By the time I can swing the coil up onto the sand and pull myself from the water, her body's gone but I can still taste her blood mingled with the sea salt. I walk back to the cornucopia. Phoenix gotten Beatty back alive, although a little waterlogged, sitting up and snorting out water. He had the good sense to hang on to his glasses, so at least he could see. I placed the reel of wire onto his lap. It's sparkling clean, no blood left at all. He unravels a piece of the wire and runs it through his fingers. For the first time, I see it, and it's unlike any wire I know. A pale golden color, and as fine as a piece of hair. I wonder how long it is. There must be miles of the stuff to fill the large spool. But I don't ask, because I know he's thinking of wireless. I look at the other's sober faces. Now, Finnick, Joanna, and Beatty have all lost their district partners. I cross to Peta and wrap my arms around him, and for a while, we all stay silent. Let's get off this tanking island, Joanna says finally. It's only the matter of our weapons now, which we've largely retained. Fortunately, the vines here are strong enough, and the spile and the tube of medicine wrapped in the parachute are still secured to my belt. Finnick strips off his undershirt and ties it around the wound, and Abaria's knife made in his thigh. It's not deep. Beatty thinks he can walk now, if we go slowly, so I help him up. We decide to head to the beach at twelve o'clock. That should provide hours of calm and keep us clear of any poisonous residue. And then Peta, Joanna, and Finnick head off in three different directions. Twelve o'clock, right? says Peta. The tail points at twelve. That was before they spun us, says Finnick. I was judging by the sun. The sun only tells you when it's going on for, Peter. Does Petic. Petic. Finnick and Peter. Oh, I'm sure there's some Tumblr tags about that one, aren't we? The sun only tells you it's going on for, Finnick, I say. I think Katniss's point is, knowing the time doesn't necessarily mean you know where four is on the clock. You might have had a general idea of the direction. Unless you consider that they may have shifted the outer ring of the jungle as well, says Beatty. No, Katniss's point was a lot more basic than that. Beatty's articulated a theory far beyond my comment on the sun. But I just nod my head like I've been on the same page all along. Yes, so any one of these paths could lead to twelve o'clock, I say. We circle the cornucopia, scrutinizing the jungle. It has a baffling uniformity. I remember that tall tree that took the first lightning strike at twelve o'clock, but every sector has a similar tree. Joanna thinks to follow Anabaria and Brutus's tracks, but they've been blown or washed away. There's no way to tell where anything is. I should have never mentioned the clock, I say bitterly. 
now they've taken that advantage away as well. Only temporarily, says Beatty. At ten, we'll see the wave again and be back on track. Yeah, they can't redesign the whole arena, says Peter. It doesn't matter, says Joanna impatiently. You had to tell us or we never would have moved our camp in the first place, brainless. Ironically, her logical, if demeaning, reply is the only one that comforts me. Yes, I had to tell them to get a move on. All right, come on. I need water. Anyone have a good gut feeling? We randomly choose a path and take it, having no idea what number we're headed for. When we reach the jungle, we peer into it, trying to decipher what might be waiting inside. Well, it must be monkey hour, and I don't see any of them in there, says Peter. I'm going to try to tap a tree. No, it's my turn, says Finnick. I can at least watch your back, Peter says. Katniss can do that, says Joanna. We need you to make another map. The other one washed away. She yanks a large leaf off a tree and hands it to him. For a moment, I'm suspicious they're trying to divide and kill us. But it doesn't make sense. I'll have the advantage on Finnick if he's dealing with the tree, and Peter's much bigger than Joanna. So I follow Finnick about 15 yards into the jungle, where he finds a good tree and starts stabbing at it to make a hole with his knife. As I stand there, weapons ready... I can't lose the uneasy feeling that something is going on, that it's something that has to do with Peter. I retrace our steps, starting from the moment that the gong rang out, searching for the source of my discomfort. Finnick towing Peter off of his metal plate. Finnick reviving Peter after the force field stopped his heart. Mags running into the fog so that Finnick could carry Peter. The morphling hurling herself in front of him to block the monkey's attack. The fight with the careers was so quick, but didn't Finnick block Brutus's spear from hitting Peta, even though it meant taking Enabaria's knife in his leg? And even now, Joanna has him drawing a map on a leaf, rather than risking the jungle. There's no question about it. For reasons completely unfathomable to me, some of the other victors are trying to keep him alive, even if it means sacrificing themselves. I'm dumbfounded. For one thing, that's my job. For another, it doesn't make sense. Only one of us can get out, so why have they chosen Peter to protect? What has Hamish possibly said to them? What has he bargained with them to make them put Peter's life above their own? I know my own reasons for keeping Peter alive. He's my friend, and this is my way to defy the capital, to subvert its terrible games. But if I had no real ties to him, what would make me want to save him? To choose him over myself? Certainly he's brave, but we've all been brave enough to survive the games. There is that quality of goodness that's so hard to overlook, but still. And then I think of it. What Peter can do so much better than the rest of us. He can use words. He obliterated the rest of the field at both interviews. And maybe it's because of that underlying goodness that he can move a crowd. No, a country to his side with the turn of a simple sentence. I remember thinking that was the gift that the leader of our revolution should have. Has Hamish convinced the others of this? 
that Peta's tongue would have a far greater power against the capital than any physical strength the rest of the team could claim? I don't know. It still seems like a really far leap for some of the tributes. I mean, we're talking about Joanna Mason here. But what other explanation can there be for their decided efforts to keep him alive? Katniss, have you got that spile? Finnick asks, snapping me back to reality. I cut the vine that ties the spile to my belt and hold the metal tube out to him. That's when I hear the scream. So full of fear and pain, it ices my blood. And so familiar. I drop the spile, forget where I am or what lies ahead, only know that I must reach her, protect her. I run wildly in the direction of the voice, heedless of danger, ripping through the vines and branches, through anything that keeps me from reaching her. From reaching my little sister. Heck of a cliffhanger, once again. It never ends. But we find ourselves here at the end of this chapter with, apparently, Prim's voice screaming out from the jungle. Everyone, I'm going to take a quick five-minute break. I hope that if you are watching this right now and you have not followed, uh, I hope you will consider it. Uh, thank you very much for watching, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you are wondering what else we get up to, you can go ahead and follow here and find us on Wednesdays and Thursdays for right now. But go ahead and use the links command at any time that will bring up the link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot ee slash sidecar stories linktree slash sidecar stories that will take you to all of the important little details about the channel including the most important one the discord because that is our general hub that's the sidecar garage uh where we go ahead and have our you know midweek talks we chat about the things in the chapter and uh just have a little bit of fun thank you very much to grimalkin and proteus spade thank you a ton for your subscriptions jade um oh never mind that was from yesterday uh but uh Let's see, Cosmic, Cosmic Tinks, hi there bruv, Cosmic Tinks, good to see you, <laughs> thank you for the follow, you are follower number 1001, there you go. Uh, Van Saves Live says, Wednesdays have been fun, thank you for my Machine Gun Kelly werewolf, never felt cooler, well, I am glad you enjoyed it, Van. <laughs> I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, folks, uh, you know, we do Bad Beans here on when, or on Thursdays, but on Wednesdays, uh, if you enjoy our little show there and you wish to have your name popped in there and uh, basically become an NPC in that campaign, well, I'd love to have you over there. If you want to uh, share about the show, go ahead and use the hashtag uh, SideCannons for Wednesdays and Flying Sidecar for Thursdays. That way I know what show you're watching and what kind of what kind of business you want to get into. Folks, a chatter break question, and then I will see you in five minutes. Because I'm going to take my quick break, and then we're going to go on to our final chapter of the evening. Chapter 24. Here's our question. I'm actually, honestly, I'm trying to think of one right now, because I don't necessarily want to just one-to-one -one retread our ground from before. Um, honestly, let's talk about PETA. 
Katniss has just capped off this episode or this uh, this chapter here with a a sort of half realization about Peta. It seems like the focus isn't necessarily Katniss and Peta as much as the focus of these other victors. Um, you know, Joanna Mason, Finnick O'Dare, even Mags, even the Morphling. These people are trying to keep Peta alive. It seems like none more so than Finnick, but certainly Joanna's doing her part. Um, some random morphling from District 6 who Katniss has never spoken a word to doing her part to keep PETA alive? What does it mean? I'll see you in five. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How are you? How the heck are you? It's good to see you. Oh, no, of course, it's always good to see you. Come on in, take your shoes off. And put them next to the dryer. Orly Rose says, I think Snow plays to break Katniss as a figurehead for the Rebellion and reassert his control with this quarter quell. It's going to backfire very badly. <laughs> Bless me. <coughs> this is what I was dealing with last night, gang. This was me last night, 4 a.m. Just chilling. Just chilling. Having my, uh, having my, my lungs sort of wanting to go on a high-flying adventure. Even though I was fully trying to sleep. No good. No good at all. Alright folks, we're back in it. Chatterbreak question was, what's the deal with all these tributes trying to protect PETA? Very strange, right? Before we go back in, uh, Sparkle Lovegood says, is it Sherlock that we're going to do when Tuesday starts up again? Yes, when Tuesdays start up again, um, assuming it's going to be on Tuesdays, that much I cannot guarantee, unfortunately. Um, but when Vintage Sidecar starts up again, it is indeed going to be the Sherlock Holmes series. I pretty much plan to do all of them, start to finish. Um, yes, that is the plan. However, as some of you may know, uh, my girlfriend's job situation is changing. She is leaving her current job uh, on her own terms, I should add. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, over the summer, basically, you know, as a teacher, there's already a month out of the year where she just doesn't get a paycheck. And so during this time, over the next couple of months, I have taken on uh, an extra job. So at this point, if we include streaming, uh, which I do, uh, I'm now working three jobs. So if you're wondering what I'm up to, um, basically, I, I took on some, some extra stuff. I had a friend who needed some uh, data entry work help. And so I'm doing that as well. So uh, although I was planning to get uh, a vintage sidecar booted up, much more soon um it doesn't look like it's going to be happening in the next month or two i would say i'm i'm looking at maybe i'm looking at maybe september for that one we shall see we shall see um but uh, i'm probably gonna be doing this through august i would guess so that's where we're at with that but this question of what is What's the deal with this PETA situation? Hmm? Hmm. Orly Rose uh, is talking about, uh, you know, how this plan of President Snow is probably going to backfire. Um, and Orly Rose says, I think Katniss has it right. They want uh, PETA's humble and honest and raw way with the truth 
and with words. Uh, Sparkle Good says, I think it's people keeping PETA alive. Katniss can keep herself alive. Interesting. Katniss definitely does have that pretty raw survival instinct. Van says, I have no clue, but it must have something to do with whatever Haymitch's secret plan is and whatever Joanna Mason must have been talking about when she said she brought the other two tributes for Katniss. Feels very much like we as readers and Katniss herself have one very specific piece of info missing, but no clue what it could be. Indeed. Indeed. Let's see, who else has weighed in on this? Um... Proteus Spade uh, is throwing down some heat about uh, about the hovercraft. Interesting. How so? How so, Proteus Spade? Is it just the timing? Um, I'm curious. Uh, let's see. Mellow Player. I know this goes along with the first question, but Katniss knows something's being withheld from her that our allies know, and she doesn't fully trust her allies because of it. It seems like there's certainly a bit of that, right? Yeah, Katniss is definitely not sure what everyone's not telling her. Or at the very least, you know, what, uh, what Haymitch didn't tell her. It seems like he's in on it in some way. Folks! Folks. Welcome back to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam. This is, of course, Thursday, which makes this flying sidecar a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Right now, The Hunger Games. We are rounding up in the end of book two, folks. This is going to be our last chapter for today, chapter 24, and then we've only got one more episode of this book, and we're going to be doing that next week. So, bear with me, everybody. I hope you're excited. I certainly am. I've had such a fun time so far, and I'm very much looking forward to continuing with you all. Let's do it. A bit of review. From the book, beginning of the book until now, um, Katniss finds herself back in the arena. Katniss is back, baby! And, uh, she's been thinking more and more about the rebellion that seems to be stirring up in the districts outside of the capital. Um... The more she thinks about it, the more she sort of wants to be on board with it. But right now, her priority, she's inside the arena. There's only one thing she can really think about. She'll make mention of it and do the things that she can. But the the biggest thing that she can do to subvert the games is to keep PETA alive. That's the only thing going through her mind. And yet, as of these last couple of chapters, um, as uh, Finnick has saved PETA's life um, and... You know, done it multiple times, uh, you know, continuing to defend him as they have, as our you know, most recent chapters, met up with Joanna Mason and Wyrus and Beatty, um, as Mags wandered off into the poison seemingly to protect PETA, as a morphling from District 6 just suddenly hurls herself out in front of uh, PETA to protect him from a monkey attack. All these things are contributing to one clear picture. There's, of course, the picture of what without the picture of why. A clear picture of what's going on. The other victors, the other uh, tributes here, they're protecting PETA for some reason. At the very least, some of them are. It doesn't seem like Kashmir or Gloss or Enabaria or the fourth one uh, have too much. Oh, it's one of the... Is it Cato? It's one of the... Um, it's not Cato. That's from the other one. Uh, it's, it's one of those Roman names. Uh, but Finnick, Joanna Mason, who... Katniss doesn't particularly like even, and and uh, Joanna certainly doesn't like Katniss back. Um, some of these individuals are trying to keep them alive, but more specifically, try to keep PETA alive. And as we reach the end of our last chapter, Katniss is starting to put some of these pieces together. Whatever it is that Haymitch isn't telling her, 
there's this idea that's forming in her mind that maybe they've all seen in Cat they've all seen in PETA what Katniss sees in PETA, which is that his way with words, his ability to speak and communicate with people, that is going to be so much more valuable to any potential uprising than anything that sh any strength that she or the other tributes could bring to the table. Peta is important to get out of this arena because it's important what he's going to be able to do when he leaves. And that is where we find ourselves. Just as Katniss from the jungle surrounding hears the screams of her little sister. That's the wrong audio. There we go. Chapter 24. Where is she? What are they doing to her? Prim! I cry out. Prim! Only another agonized scream answers me. How did she get here? Why is she part of the games? Prim! Vines cut into my face and arms. Creepers grab my feet, but I'm getting closer to her. Closer. Very close now. Sweat pours down my face, stinging the healing acid wounds. I pant, trying to use some of that warm, moist air that seems to be empty of oxygen. Prim makes a sound. Such a lost, irretrievable sound, I can't imagine what they've done to evoke it. Prim! I rip through a wall of green into a small clearing, and the sound repeats directly above me. Above me? My head whips back. Do they have her up in the trees? I desperately search the branches, but see nothing. Prim! I say pleadingly. I hear her, but I can't see her. Her next wail rings out, clear as a bell, and there's no mistaking the source. It's coming from the mouth of a small, crested black bird perched on a branch about ten feet over my head. And then I understand. It's a jabberjay. I've never seen one before. I thought they no longer existed. And for a moment... As I lean against the trunk of the tree, clutching the stitch in my side, I examine it. The mutation, the forerunner, the father. I pull up a mental image of a mockingbird, fuse it with the jabberjay, and yes, I can see how they mated to make a mockingjay. There's nothing about the bird that suggests it's a mutt. Nothing except the horribly lifelike sounds of Prim's voice streaming from its mouth. I silence it with an arrow to its throat. The bird falls to the ground. I remove my arrow and wring its neck for good measure. Then I hurl the revolting thing into the jungle. No degree of hunger would ever tempt me to eat it. It wasn't real, I tell myself. The same way the mutation wolves last year weren't really the dead tributes. It's just a sadistic trick of the game makers. Finnick crashes into the clearing to find me wiping my arrow clean with some moss. Katniss. It's okay. I'm okay, I say, although I don't feel okay at all. Thought I heard my sister, but... 
a piercing shriek cuts me off. It's another voice, not Prim's. Maybe a young woman's. I don't recognize it. But the effect on Finnick is instantaneous. The color vanishes from his face, and I can actually see his pupils dilate in fear. Finnick, wait, I say, reaching out to reassure him, but he's bolted away, gone off in pursuit of the victim, as mindlessly as I pursued Prim. Finnick, I call, but I know he won't turn back and wait for me to give a rational explanation. So all I can do is follow him. It's no effort to track him, even though he's moving so fast, since he leaves a clear, trampled path in his wake. But the bird is at least a quarter mile away, most of it uphill, and by the time I reach him, I'm winded. He's circling around a giant tree. The trunk must be four feet in diameter, and the limbs don't even begin until twenty feet up. The woman's shrieks emanate from somewhere in the foliage, but the Jabberjay is concealed. Finnick's screaming as well, over and over. Annie! Annie! He's in a state of panic and completely unreachable, so I do what I would do anyway. I scale an adjacent tree, locate the Jabberjay, and take it out with an arrow. It falls straight down, landing right at Finnick's feet. He picks it up, slowly making the connection, but when I slide down to join him, he looks even more despairing than ever. It's all right, Finnick. It's just the Jabberjay. They're playing a trick on us, I say. It's not real. It's not your... Annie. No, it's not Annie. But the voice was hers. Jabberjays mimic what they hear. Where do they get those screams, Katniss? He says. I can feel my own cheeks grow pale as I understand his meaning. Fennec, you don't think they... Yes, I do. That's exactly what I think, he says. I have an image of Prim in a white room strapped to a table while masked, robed figures elicit those sounds from her. Somewhere they're torturing her, or did torture her to get those sounds. My knees turn to water and I sink to the ground. Finnick is trying to tell me something, but I can't hear him. What I do finally hear is another bird starting up somewhere to my left, and this time the voice is Gale's. Finnick catches my arm before I can run. No, it's not him. He starts pulling me downhill toward the beach. We're getting out of here. But Gale's voice is so full of pain, I can't help struggling to reach it. It's not him, Katniss, it's a mutt! Finnick shouts at me. Come on! He moves me along, half dragging, half carrying me until I can process what he said. He's right, it's just another Jabberjay. I can't help Gale by chasing it down. That doesn't change the fact that it is Gale's voice, and somewhere, sometime, someone has made him sound like this. I stop fighting Finnick, though. And like that night in the fog, I flee what I can't fight. What will only do me harm. Only this time, it's my heart and not my body that's disintegrating. This must be another weapon of the clock. Four o'clock, I guess. When the hands tick-tock to four, the monkeys go home and the Jabberjays come out to play. Finnick is right. Getting out of here is the only thing to do. Although there will be nothing Hamish can send in a parachute that will help either Finnick or me to recover from the wounds that the birds have inflicted. I catch sight of Peta and Joanna standing in the tree line, and I'm filled with a mixture of relief and anger. Why didn't Peta come to help me? Why did no one come after us? Even now he hangs back, his hands raised, palms toward us, 
Lips moving, but no words reaching us. Why? The wall is so transparent, Finnick and I run smack into it and bounce back to the jungle floor. I'm lucky. My shoulder took the worst of the impact, whereas Finnick hit face first and now his nose is gushing blood. This is why Peta and Joanna and even Beatty, who I can see sadly shaking his head behind them, have not come to our aid. An invisible barrier blocks the area in front of us. It's not a force field. You can touch the hard, smooth surface all you like, but Peta's knife and Joanna's axe can't make a dent in it. I know, without checking more than a few feet to one side, it encloses the entire four to five o'clock wedge. That we're going to be trapped like rats until the hour passes. Peter presses his hand against the surface, and I put my own up to meet it, as if I can feel him through the wall. I see his lips moving, but I can't hear him. Can't hear anything outside of our wedge. I try to make out what he's saying, but I can't focus, so I just stare at his face, doing my best to hang on to my sanity. Then the birds begin to arrive. One by one. Perching on the surrounding branches. And a carefully orchestrated chorus of horror begins to spill out of their mouths. Finnick gives up at once hunching on the ground, clenching his hands over his ears as if he's trying to crush his skull. I try to fight for a while, emptying my quiver of arrows into the hated birds, but every time one drops dead, another one takes its place. And finally I give up and curl up beside Finnick, trying to block out the excruciating sounds of Prim, Gale, my mother, Madge, Rory, Vic, even Posey, helpless little Posey. I know it stopped when I can feel Peter's hands on me, feel myself lifted from the ground and out of the jungle. But I stay eyes squeezed shut, hands over my ears, muscles too rigid to release. Peter holds me on his lap, speaking soothing words, rocking me gently. It takes a long time before I begin to relax the iron grip on my body, and when I do, the trembling begins. It's all right, Katniss. You didn't hear them. I held Prim right in the beginning, but it wasn't her. It was a Jabberjee. It was her. Some, somewhere. The Jabberjee just re recorded it. I say. No, that's what they want you to think. The same way that I wonder if Glimmer's eyes were in that mutt last year, but those weren't Glimmer's eyes. And that wasn't Prim's voice. But if it was, they took it from an interview or something and distorted the sound. Made it say whatever she was saying. No. They were torturing her. She's probably dead. Katniss, Prim isn't dead. How could they kill Prim? We're almost down to the final eight of us. And what happens then? Peter says. Seven more of us die. I say hopelessly. No, back home. What happens when they reach the final eight tributes in the games? He lifts my chin so I have to look at him. Forces me to make eye contact. Katniss, what happens at the final eight? I know he's trying to help me, so I try to make myself think. At the final eight, they interview your family and your friends back home. That's right. 
to interview your family and your friends? And can they do that if they've killed them all? No, I ask, still unsure. No. That's how we know Prem is alive. She'll be the first one at the interview, won't she? He asks. I want to believe him. Badly. It's just... Those voices. First Prim. Then your mother. Your cousin. Gail. Madge. He continues. It was a trick, Cadmus. A horrible one. But we are the only ones who can be hurt by it. We are the ones in the games, not them. Do you really believe that? I say. I really do, says Peter. I waver, thinking of how Peter can make anyone believe anything. I look over at Finnick for confirmation, see that he's fixated on Peter, on his words. Do you believe it, Finnick? I ask. It could be true. I don't know. Could they do that, BT? Take someone's regular voice and make it... Oh, yes, it's not even that difficult, Finnick. Our children learn a similar technique in school, says Beatty. Of course Peter's right. The whole country adores Katniss's little sister. If they really killed her like this, they'd probably have an uprising on their hands, says Joanna flatly. Don't want that, do they? She throws back her head and shouts, Whole country in rebellion? Wouldn't want anything like that. My mouth drops open in shock. No one ever says anything like this in the games. Absolutely, they've cut away from Joanna, editing her out. But I've heard her, and I can never think about her the same way again. She'll never win any awards for kindness, but she's certainly gutsy. Or crazy. She picks up some shells and heads toward the jungle. I'm getting water, she says. I can't help catching her hand as she passes me. Don't go in there. The birds... I remember the birds must be gone, but I still don't want anyone in there, not even her. They can't hurt me. I'm not like the rest of you. There's no one left I love, Joanna says, and frees her hand with an impatient shake. When she brings me back a shell of water, I take it with a silent nod of thanks, knowing how much she would despise the pity in my voice. While Joanna collects water and my arrows, Beatty fiddles with his wire, and Finnick takes to the water. I need to clean up too, but I stay in Peter's arms, still too shaken to move. Who did they use against Finnick? he asks. Somebody named Annie, I say. Hmm, must be Annie Cresta, he says. Who? I ask. Annie Cresta. She was the girl that Mags volunteered for. She won about five years ago. That would have been the summer after my father died, when I first began feeding my family, when my whole being was occupied with battling starvation. I don't remember those games much. Was that the earthquake year? Yep. Annie's the one who went mad when her district partner got beheaded, ran off by herself and hid, but an earthquake broke a dam and most of the arena got flooded. She won because she was the best swimmer, says Peter. Did she get better after? I mean, her mind? 
I don't know. I don't remember seeing her after the games again. But she didn't look too stable during the reaping this year, says Peter. So that's the girl who Finnick loves. Not his string of fancy lovers in the capital, but a poor, mad girl back home, I think. A cannon blast brings us all together on the beach. A hovercraft appears in what we estimate to be the six to seven o'clock zone. We watch as the claw dips down five different times to retrieve the pieces of one body torn apart. It's impossible to tell who it was. Whatever happens at six o'clock, I never want to know. Peter draws a new map on a leaf, adding a JJ for Jabber Jays in the four to five o'clock section, and simply writing Beast in one, the one where we saw the tribute collected in pieces. We now have a good idea of what seven of the hours will bring. And if there's any positive to the Jabberjay attack, it's that it's let us know where we are on the clock face again. Finnick weaves yet another water basket in a net for fishing. I took a quick swim and put more ointment on my skin. Then I sit at the edge of the water, cleaning the fish that Finnick catches and watching the sun drop below the horizon. The bright moon is already on the rise, filling the arena with that strange twilight. We're about to settle down for our meal of raw fish when the anthem begins. And then the faces. Kashmir, Gloss, Wyrus, Mags, the woman from District 5, the morphling who gave her life for Peta. Blight, the man from 10. Eight dead, plus eight from the first night. Two-thirds of us gone in a day and a half. It must be some kind of record. Now they're really burning through us, says Joanna. Who's left, besides us five in District 2? asks Finnick. Chaff, says Peter, without needing to think about it. Perhaps he's been keeping an eye out for him because of Haymitch. A parachute comes down with a pile of bite-sized, square-shaped rolls. These are from your district, right, Petey? Peter asks. Yes, from District 3, he says. How many are there? Finnick counts them, turning each one over in his hands before he sets it in a neat configuration. I don't know what it is with Finnick and bread, but he seems obsessed with handling it. Twenty-four. And even two dozen, then, says Beatty. Twenty-four on the nose, says Finnick. How should we divide them? Let's each have three, and whoever's still alive at breakfast can take a vote for the rest, says Joanna. I don't know why this makes me laugh a little. I guess because it's true. When I do, Joanna gives me a look that's almost approving. No, not approving, but maybe slightly pleased. We wait until the giant wave has flooded out of the 10 to 11 o'clock section, wait for the water to recede, and then go to that beach to make camp. Theoretically, we should have a full 12 hours of safety from the jungle. There's an unpleasant chorus of clicking, probably from some evil type of insect coming from the 11 to 12 o'clock wedge, but whatever it is making the sound, it stays within the confines of the jungle, and we keep off of that part of the beach in case they're just waiting for a carelessly placed footfall to swarm out. I don't know how Joanna's still on her feet. She's only had about an hour of sleep since the game started. 
Peter and I volunteer for first watch because we're better rested and because we want some time alone. The others go out immediately, although Finnick's sleep is restless. Every now and then I hear him murmuring Annie's name. Peter and I sit on the damp sand, facing away from each other, my right shoulder and hip pressed against his. I watch the water as he watches the jungle, which is better for me. I'm still haunted by the voices of the jabberjays, which, unfortunately, the insects can't drown out. After a while, I rest my head against his shoulder, feel his hand caress my hair. Gatlus, he says softly. There's no use pretending that we don't know what the other one's trying to do. No, I guess there isn't, but it's no fun discussing it either. Well, not for us anyway. The capital viewers will be glued to their set so they don't miss one wretched word. I don't know what sort of deal that you've made with Hamish, but you should know he made promises to me as well. Of course, I know this too. He told Peter they could keep me alive so he wouldn't be suspicious. So I think we can assume that he was lying to one of us. This gets my attention. A double deal. A double promise, with only Hamish knowing which one is real. I raise my head, meet Peter's eyes. Why are you saying this now? Because I don't want you forgetting how different our circumstances are. If you die and I live, there's no life for me at all back in District 12. You're my whole life. I would never be happy again. I start to object, but he puts a finger to my lips. It's definite for you. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be hard. But there are other people who would make your life worth living. Peter pulls the chain with the gold disc from around his neck. He holds it in the moonlight so I can clearly see the Mockingjay. Then his thumb slides along a catch I didn't notice before and the disc pops open. It's not solid, as I'd thought, but a locket. And within the locket are photos. On the right side, my mother and Prim laughing, and on the left, Gail, actually smiling. There's nothing in the world that could break me faster at this moment than these three faces. After what I heard this afternoon, this is the perfect weapon. Your family needs you, Katniss. My family. My mother, my sister, my pretend cousin Gail. But Peter's intention is clear, that Gail really is my family, or will be one day if I live, that I'll marry him. So Peter's giving me his life and Gail at the same time. To let me know I shouldn't ever have doubts about it. Everything. That's what Peter wants me to take from him. I wait for him to mention the baby, to play to the cameras, but he doesn't, and that's how I know that none of this is part of the games, that he is telling me the truth about what he feels. No one really needs me, he says, and there's no self-pity in his voice. 
It's true his family doesn't need him. They will mourn him, as will a handful of friends, but they'll get on. Even Hamish, with the help of a lot of white liquor, will get on. I realize only one person will be damaged beyond repair if Peter dies. Me. I do, I say. I need you. He looks upset, takes a deep breath as if about to begin a long argument, and that's no good. No good at all, because he'll start going on about Prim and my mother and everything I've just gotten confused. So before he can talk, I stop his lips with a kiss. I feel that thing again. The thing I only felt once before, in the cave last year, when I was trying to get Hamish to send us food. I kissed Peta about a thousand times during those games, and after. But there was only one kiss that made me feel something stir deep inside. Only one that made me want more. But my head wound started bleeding and he had made me lie down. This time, there's nothing but us to interrupt us. And after a few attempts, Peter gives up on talking. The sensation inside me grows warmer and spreads out from my chest, down through my body, out along my arms and legs to the tips of my being. Instead of satisfying me, the kisses have the opposite effect, of making my need greater. I thought I was something of an expert on hunger, but this is an entirely new kind. It's the first crack of the lightning storm, the bolt hitting the tree at midnight that brings us to our senses. It rouses Finnick as well. He sits up with a sharp cry. I can see his fingers digging into the sand as he reassures himself that whatever nightmare he inhabited isn't real. I can't sleep anymore. One of you should rest, he says. Only then does he seem to notice our expressions, the way that we're wrapped around each other. Or both of you. I can watch alone. Peter won't let him, though. It's too dangerous, he says. I'm not tired. You lie down, Katniss. I don't object, because I do need to sleep if I'm going to be of any use keeping him alive. I let him lead me over to where the others are. He puts the chain with the locket around my neck and then rests his hand over the spot where our baby would be. You're going to make a great mother, you know, he says. He kisses me one last time and goes back to Finnick. His reference to the baby signals that our time out from the games is over. That he knows the audience will be wondering why he hasn't used the most persuasive argument in his arsenal. That sponsors must be manipulated. But as I stretch out in the sand, I wonder, could it be more? Like a reminder to me that I could still one day have kids with Gale? Well, if that was it, it was a mistake. Because for one thing, that's never been part of my plan. And for another, if only one of us can be a parent, anyone can see it should be PETA. As I drift off, I try to imagine that world. Somewhere in the future, with no games, no capital. A place like the meadow, in the song I sang to Rue as she died, where Peter's child could be safe. 
Hmm. A tough chapter. A real tough chapter, gang. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Van Seb's Live just says, dang. Gwendog says, good chapter. This was a tough one. And unlike so, so much of this whole series so far, doesn't hang on a, doesn't what? Doesn't end on a particular cliffhanger. Big Mama says, oh my heart. Indeed. Indeed. Mellow Player says, I can't help but think how their loved ones feel watching them go through scenes like this. Yeah, everyone watching back at home. Um, it would be, I mean, it would be one of those things where, I mean, and this is kind of the point, it would be impossible to watch and simultaneously impossible not to watch. Right? I'm sure that is the intent of events like this. That's the point, right? Make it impossible to watch and impossible not to watch. It's supposed to be horrifying. But there is only so long that someone will play the game Kiss the Boot. This was the experience that I had um, with, uh, I'll call it, certain ideological parts of my of my past. Um, but at some point, you know, it, when, when the question is like, I'm going to, uh, what is it? What is it? Oh, what's the, there's a quote from the military. I believe, um, the beatings will continue until morale increases, right? The whole point of this is to like, it is to make the, <laughs> it's to make the district's uh, content with the status quo, make it, make them content with it by sort of reminding them of a horror, uh, from the past. And yet how effective is that possibly going to be? Because what it's, what it is doing is ratcheting up the suffering every year. This is not anymore reminding the districts of a part of their history. That's not what it's doing anymore. It's 75 years old. The people who experienced that initial rebellion, they're all dead now. All of them are dead now. This is a new generation of people who never experienced the rebellion. What they do experience is the suffering of the games themselves. And so, Pan Am has two options. They can adapt or they can crumble. They need to adapt to a new way of living here. A new way that does not continue to inflict suffering on those uh, who don't have the means or the luck of birth into the right district. AKA, not a district, but into the capital. Either the capital, the, and by the capital, I think, you know, we, we can fairly call that a shorthand for the people of power. The people of power in the country of Pan Am. Either the people of power are going to adapt to this and reconfigure the way that power is distributed, reconfigure the way that people are treated, or the whole machine can crumble. And when it does crumble, those people... Those people who were maintaining that structure of power before before anyone is going to have a chance to really try and rebuild, the first thing that goes is that group of people. Because they were the perpetrators. They did this. They perpetrated this. They maintained this. You know, even if they are not the first generation of people who instituted this, at this point, they are maintaining that system. And I think that's important to remember. 
it's important to remember as as life changes around us, as circumstances change, as the world continues to change, so too should the ways that uh, people are governed, right? So too should the, the ways in which we treat people. As we continue to identify more parts of humanity that, that deserve the honor of existence, so too must power react to that. If power does not react to that, it is it is <laughs> demanding suffering, and demanding suffering leads exactly in one direction. It's only a matter of how long. Let's not demand suffering of people, shall we, gang? Let's demand that things are better. We can do that. We can do that if we can be a little bit like Katniss here. And that's, I think, the last big moment that I want to hit in this is Katniss, how much Katniss is realizing and uh, and recognizing the importance of allying with people with whom she does not get along with, right? It's not important that she wouldn't be friends with Joanna Mason. The important thing is Katniss is here in the arena to make a point, to send a message. She's going to keep PETA alive, and in doing so, she is going to... Do absolutely whatever she can. This is her method of sticking it to the game, sticking it to the people in power. Once again, we can shorthand that to the capital. That's what it is in this point. However, I do want to re remind all of you that, um, you know, the, the United States came from a, a history, we come from a tradition of recognizing tyranny coming from basically exactly one place. Keep in mind that tyranny is not something that has to exclusively be the realm of the government. <laughs> There are other places tyranny can come from, gang. A quick reminder for all of you. But uh, in, in facing that tyranny, Katniss's point here is to not, not win the games, but to get PETA out alive. That is her act of defiance. That is what she's going to do to aid the rebellion. That is the piece that she is going to put into this puzzle. That's the part she can play. But she can't do it alone. And in order to do this, in order to really accomplish this, she's going to have to get along with people with whom she does not agree, she does not like. She's doing it. She's doing it. She's learning. Oh, look at her. <laughs> she's learning, as must we. And with that, folks, I want to thank you all very, very much for joining me here today.